Welcome. Today on Creation Talk, we're going to discuss whether our Bibles have been changed. What do you think? Well, if you're joining us for this part two, just so you know, in case we don't cover some questions or thoughts you might have, we did do a part one. I'm with Lita Kosner, who did part one uh, with me. Welcome again, Lita. Hi, Gary. So we're going to talk more about, uh, you know, the idea of transmission, the Bible being faithfully copied over time. So we said in the part one that people said, well, what about all the copying mistakes? We discussed that the scribes were human photocopiers who believed they were dealing with God's word and would have treated it as such. They would have been very, very careful not to make errors. But having said that, we can determine, hang on, folks, there are errors in the Bibles, right, in some of the copies that we have. Now, you and I today might call these typographical errors, correct? So explain how that may have occurred and how we know that they've occurred. Well, just like the Bible was originally written by men, it was copied by men. And if you grabbed a book off of your shelf and tried to make a handwritten copy, you'd have all sorts of errors in it. And we can see those same types of errors when we look at manuscripts. And skeptics actually say, did you know that there are more errors in the Bible, in the manuscripts, than there are actual words in the Bible. Well, that's only true if you count every little spelling mistake or even spelling variation. It's a nice soundbite, isn't it? Yeah. And it it scares people because we don't want to think, oh, my Bible has errors in it. But what, But once we understand that most of these are just spelling errors or spelling variations that couldn't possibly be original, that makes it a lot less scary. Well, and also they don't change the meaning of the text, surely. You know, there's, yes. there's a very, very few occasions, my understanding, is where it might actually change the meaning yeah. of a word or the yeah. text itself. And the wonderful thing about Scripture is God doesn't teach us a doctrine in only one place, and no no error affects a doctrine. And so you might have an error, like we don't know whether Paul said the Lord Jesus Christ or just Jesus in one place, but doesn't change the meaning. Yeah, we know who yeah, he's referring to, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So we have lots of uh, family lines and various copies that we can trace through various geographical locations. So surely that's a cross-check as well. We might see in one family line an error introduced. Over here, we don't see it. I mean, that's a little bit similar to you know, me looking at studying or someone studying your DNA, right, later, and they say, well, look, here's a mutation, and then we check your mum and your dad and we say, well, you got that from your mother's line. Yes. And then we check your mother's parents and can understand where that error came in. So in a lot of cases, can't they actually trace these typos back to where they originally introduced? Yes, we can have some idea where they came up. And actually, one of the reasons we can have such great confidence in the Bible we have today is that it's based on so many copies. We have many, many more copies of the biblical documents than any other book in history. Yeah. Let me let me jump on that because if you weren't in the first episode, uh, Lita and I have actually co-written a booklet here called How Did We Get Our Bible and Is It the Word of God? A lot of this information is in there. And we have a lovely little chart in there. So people have heard, for example, about Homer's famous Iliad. You know how many copies we have today? 643, right? 
Sophocles, 193 manuscripts. What about the New Testament? 5,700. I mean, to me, that's a bit of a slam dunk. Yes. And we're still finding new manuscripts today. There's a ministry uh, headed by a man, and you can watch his videos on YouTube, Dan Wallace. And because of what's happening in the Middle East, Dan Wallace's ministry is trying to make digitized copies of all the ancient manuscripts that we know exist. And when they go to some place and they haven't pulled off books for the shelf, what are they finding? Well, they're finding new manuscripts that we've never before seen, never before studied. And this is making these manuscripts in very remote locations available for scholars to study all over the world. And it's also preserving them forever because obviously when a manuscript is written on parchment or papyrus, this is a medium that's going to wear out very quickly. And, you know, I think about the really early people who studied manuscripts, like Erasmus was one of the first ones, and he sometimes only had a few manuscripts to compare. At most, he had a few manuscripts. He couldn't have dreamed of having the wealth of information we have today. So here's something where personal preference comes in, you see. So I was raised on NIV, and, uh, you know, I personally, you know, like to still read that today. Uh, my my parents and older generations, obviously, they were raised on something like the King James. The ESV is one of the more widely used ones uh, today here in the States. The NASB is a very, very popular translation. Um, explain to us the different modes, particularly to English, that we have today. And we're going to get it a little technical, but it's worth understanding And uh, then we'll discuss whether we think there's a better one. How's that? Okay, so a lot of people ask us which translation is the best Mm. one. And to make a good informed decision for yourself, you should understand just a couple of terms that describe the philosophy behind a translation. So a formal equivalence translation tries to have word for word. So if it has the Greek word for heart it's going to have the English word for heart. Some well-known formal equivalence translations are the King James Version, the New King James Version, the English Standard Version, and the New American Standard Bible. If you look at them side by side by side, they're going to seem very similar because they have a very similar translation philosophy. philosophy. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have dynamic equivalents. Now, some people say that these are not literal translations. They're trying to be literal in a different way. They're trying to do thought-for-thought translation. And there are times in translation where doing thought-for-thought is better. Now, would that be because words would change their meanings, for example? So what uh, an original word might say might have a different meaning today, so they're trying to faithfully render the meaning of the words. Would that be a a correct analogy? Yes. And one instance of thought-for-thought translation is in Romans, Paul says, may it never be. And a dynamic equivalence translation might say, God forbid, that it's a very good translation of what that thought actually means. Now, of course, there's another one that most of us probably cut our teeth on as young baby Christians, and that's what we call a paraphrase. A paraphrase is where they're trying to rephrase scripture in an attempt to make it more understandable, and that's often meant for either children or for people who aren't really literate in the language where it's being translated. Yeah, or or new to scripture and they're wanting a a better understanding of it. Exactly. So be fair to say, I mean, you know, 
to be honest, when I was a very young Christian, I read a paraphrase and it helped me understand it. But certainly they would not be, it would not be the best type of translation to do a scholarly study on. You'd be looking for a formal equivalence or, uh, or a dynamic equivalence uh, as a second best bet on that, correct? Yes, we believe that it's the actual words of Scripture that are inspired. And so that's why scholars even today will try to go back to the Greek and Hebrew because they want to get as close back to the original as possible. Now, of course, there's a few dodgy ones out there, and uh, we make no apologies for saying this. Uh, Some of the uh, alleged cults that call themselves Christians, yes, uh, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, etc., have their own versions. And we can clearly see, even in our English translations, where they've been modified, correct? Yes. All right. So now, um, again, please understand we are an evangelical organization, but um, the Catholic Church has actually added a few books. Yes. What's the background to that? Well, in in the wake of the Reformation, the, the Roman Catholics had the Council of Trent, and the big issue was does the church decide what scripture is or does scripture govern the church? Well, mm. the Roman Catholics came down decisively on the position that the church decides scripture. And to make that point, in the Council of Trent, they added what's called the Deuterocanon, which are some books that are preserved in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. Yeah. But these are books that were originally in Greek, not Hebrew, and the Jews considered them history, but not scripture. And so for the first time in history, the Catholics said, these aren't just history, these aren't just helpful additional resources, these are scripture. And so we would say that they aren't scripture. We have a 66-book canon, but the Roman Catholics do consider the Deuterocanon to be scripture. Right, but they, but, but they do include the 66 books that, that we have as well. Yes. In other words, they've just got some other ones um, added to them. So look, we've had a very concise discussion about this. We literally could write a tome on it, and I know you'd love to. Okay, <laughs> but uh, what's the purpose of all this? The Bible, isn't it? Uh, isn't it like if I wanted to say, well, if there is a God, and He wanted to communicate to us, how would He do it? I mean, is He going to zap you and I? Are we going to be basing it on our feelings or a dream? What's He given us? He's given us. His word, and as we said in part one, it's a history book. It does give us um, information about how to live our life, but more importantly, it explains that the world we're living in is a fallen one. It's a corrupt one. It's not normal. Bad things happen. One of the most asked questions that people have. So it helps us, doesn't it? Would you agree? Make sense of our world, and then the big picture is, of course, this world's not the only one, right? There's one to come. Yes, and. You know, Jesus said, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe when I tell you heavenly mm. things? And so when the Bible tells us things that are historically verifiable or scientifically verifiable, if if we can't trust that, how can we trust it when it tells us how to be saved? And even more fundamentally than that, what even is the Bible? And it's more important than ever to be able to answer these questions today. Well, that same Jesus we're talking about, it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Son is the image, that's talking about Jesus, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That's the creator. Jesus is the creator. So 
You know, when he talks about Scripture, when he believes the Old Testament, as we said earlier, uh, we should probably take his word for it. Yes. Because it is his word. (laughs) Well, thanks for joining us again today. And again, if you want more information, uh, go to creation.com and you can certainly get this uh, nice, concise little booklet through our web store. And one of the things we didn't show, check this out, Lita. Why don't we explain what I'm showing people there? Well, there are 2,800 cross-references there where the Bible references other parts of the Bible. And so it's like the Bible is constantly cross-referencing itself. You can't remove one of those books without taking along with it a whole bunch of those cross-references. So the Bible is really a self-authenticating document. Yeah. Well, we often call it 66 books, but ultimately... It's one book. It's one book. And there you have it, 2,800 cross-references from Genesis to Revelation, the canon of Scripture. Thanks a lot, Lita. And thanks for watching uh, online or listening to your podcast. And again, encourage you to share this and make sure you click like and get this information out there. We'll look forward to seeing you next time.